second on the Giants series. Last week we looked at Samson and we were looking at what happens when the person of God, the leader of God, has all the power. And when the Israelites, who are over here, aren't they, uh, today, have all the power and how they handle it, how it affects their relationship with God. Uh, And today we're looking at what happens when the opposition, if you like, not the people of God, have the giant, the, the huge physical presence of power. Uh, when the Israelites don't have that person, what happens? How does it affect their relationship with God? Um, last, year we, l- last week, sorry, we looked specifically at Samson uh, as the giant, and this week we're not looking specifically at Goliath. And the reason is that today's focus is more on David because it's our, our response to not having power. Uh, so it's not particularly on, Sam- on Goliath today. And, you know, I think he gets a bit of a hard deal, Goliath. I don't think he's particularly evil. I don't think he's particularly bad. I think he's just particularly large, uh, which isn't his fault, is it? So, I'd, And the Phil- Philistines use him in their army, and why wouldn't they? Uh, but I think he's just a big, powerful man. Um, so today's not really going to have a look uh, too much at Goliath, but I will just outline a few things. If you can click the next slide. Uh, he was enormous in this kind of a way, um, in an enormous basketball player kind of a way. He was probably between eight and nine foot tall. Next one, there's Shaquille, next one is another one of Shaquille O'Neal, his tiny girlfriend, uh, famous basketball player. Uh, next one, uh, flick through these, will you? Uh, yeah, I don't know who, maybe that's a bit more like Samson, but... Um, Whose chances do you fancy? So, uh, next one. Uh, This was uh, the tallest man in the world until recently. This is Bao Si Shung, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. Ellie Cocaine can tell me. Um, He is 7 foot 10 inches. Um, But if you click to the next one, that's Sultan Kosen, and he is the tallest man in the world, and he's 8 foot 1. And that's uh, He Ping Ping. And he is the smallest man in the world. I think, sadly, he's died very recently. Um, but he was the smallest man in the world, and the two of them met. Can you imagine being the person whose job it was to build the billboard to have behind the tallest man in the world? Uh, and then have them stand there and realise that the one job you were in charge of you haven't, have not nailed. <laughs> he's taller than that. Unfortunate. I don't imagine they work for Guinness Book of Records for long. Um, and finally, the next slide is uh, Robert Wadlow, and he's the tallest man ever in history. Uh, and he was eight foot five, I think. So absolutely enormous people, right? The reason I mention these uh, enormous people is that probably, we don't know because we don't have the same records of people that used to be around than that we do now, but probably he had the same genetic condition that these giants of today uh, have, probably. So we don't know, but probably he had uh, a benign tumour, part, one part of his body that affected his growth hormone and it affected, they just couldn't stop growing so he grew to be enormous. Um, if that was the case, there are interesting implications for Goliath, which we'll look at later on. But that is a little bit of speculation. Um, okay, so we reach today. We reach the story of today uh, and this standoff between David and Goliath, between the Israelites and the Philistines. 
So this side we've got the uh, Philistines, this side we've got <laughs> the Israelites. Um, it must be difficult to be a Philistine, and uh, to be fair, turning up to church and told that you're a Philistine. Uh, and, and Andy seems to quite like it, but <laughs> probably fits with other people's characteristics better than others. So um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, it's, it's not really a who's who. It's not really a I hope you guys really get alongside them and you know, enjoy the, uh, the Philistine ethos. Um, but they're standing uh, on a hillside, okay? So you've got to imagine this. You've got the Philistines on one hillside coming down a valley into the center, and then you've got the Israelites on another hillside. And that's why they've reached this standoff, because the armies were advancing one way and then the other, and then they reach a standoff, because these guys are on a, basically a cliff edge at the top of a, 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 a hillside, comes down the valley into the middle, then the, Isra- the Philistines this side up on a bank on another place, right? Neither army wants to advance because if they're going to advance it means they're going to have to uh, go down the hill and then go up the other side's hill and at that point of an army re- advancing they're weak because they're ascending the hill at which point this team this army would descend very quickly and just run right through the whoever advanced first so it's a bit like a stalemate in chess nothing's happening and the bible says uh, that day after day week after week they would set up battle against each other. They're ready to go, but no one's going to make the first move. Then Goliath walks down uh, uh, towards the center with his shield bearer going before him, uh, and he says, I will fight one-on-one, one of you, because we're at a stalemate. We need something that's going to break the deadlock here. So how are we going to do it? I'll tell you what we'll do. Instead of having army-on-army clashing into each other and seeing who wins, what we'll do is we'll just say one man versus one man. I'm the biggest Philistine. Who's going to take me on? Surely if you've got the God of Israel behind you, you'll win. You know, so he's just taunting them. And no one in the Israelite army wants to take on this enormous Philistine. So the standoff goes on for days on end and nobody accepts Goliath's challenge. Uh, and then David turns up. Now we've seen a few chapters earlier, David uh, was anointed with oil by Samuel, who is the king anointer. And he anointed Saul before him. And then he had said, Saul, the Lord has left you because he disobeys God. And so uh, Samuel says, the Lord has left you, Saul, and I've now anointed a new king, which is David. He is then in uh, a field somewhere. And um, uh, his, he gets sent by Jesse, his father, and says, go and give your brothers some food. So the brothers presumably are in the army of the Israelites. So he says, go and send them. So he's only a little lad. He's a shepherd boy. He's probably about 14, something like that. So he says, go and give this food uh, to your brothers. So he turns up and sees this standoff and is completely baffled by why this standoff is happening. So you've got the two types of warfare, which is the armies clashing into each other, see who wins. You've got the hand-to-hand combat You've got this, other, this uh, other method which David sees. So he, see, he turns up completely uh, bemused by this standoff and bemused by the audacity of Goliath, who is willing to say, uh, I will take on any man the, who follows the God of the Israelites. So uh, David says, I'll have a go. I'll fight him. Bring it, bring it on. I'll, I'll kill him. And I think... David's got an idea at that point of what he's going to do. I don't think he's just going, I'll fight him sword fighting and fist fighting and whatever. 
I think he's got an idea already because he's very confident and he says, I'll take him on. So uh, I wonder what, what, do you, what do you think? In just in the scene at the moment, where would you put yourself? Would you be uh, David turning up thinking, yeah, this is a nightmare problem, but I'll, let's think of a way around it. Uh, would you be uh, one of the Israelites thinking, ah, I just don't know how to beat this enormous thing. It's too big. This problem is too big, even for our God. Well, surely it's not, but I can't see a way around it. So, he says he'll go and fight Goliath. And Saul replies, uh, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. He has been a warrior from his youth. That, by the way, is not an accurate historical representation of what Saul would have looked like. Um, it is a Roman. But I couldn't find any accurate representations of what Saul would have looked like. So imagine Saul and imagine um, Goliath and someone like that. These army men that are just designed to fight. David is the opposite of that. So he says, there's no way that you are going to do this. And David says, I have fought lion and bear with this stone just getting whilst I'm defending my sheep I have fought lion and bear and I've killed them isn't that interesting because last week Samson killed a lion didn't he I never noticed that before but David David and Samson are lion killers David says I've killed uh, lions and bears with this sling and he says this Philistine will be like one of them so he, he knows, doesn't he, what he's going to do because he doesn't, unlike Samson with all his power, he doesn't fight lions and bears in the same way. He doesn't fight them hand to hand and rip them limb from limb. He fights them with a sling and a stone because that's what God's given him. He fights them in his own frame. Saul then says something remarkable and we're going to pause on it. Next slide, Saul says to David, go and the Lord be with you. I'm going to pause on it because it's slightly out of this story for a moment. But that is a remarkable thing for Saul to have said to David. Because bear in mind that the Lord had left David and Samuel had said to Saul, the Lord has left you. And he's gone and anointed David. And Saul says to him, go David and the Lord be with you. If only Saul had actually meant that, wouldn't that have been remarkable? for what was to come. Saul, by the way, ends up getting very jealous of David and chasing him around the countries and trying to kill him. But if only he'd have held on to that. Saul says to David, go and the Lord be with you. It means a great deal, doesn't it? When the Lord is with us, we're able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We're able to do the impossible when the Lord is with us. It's so important. Is the Lord with you? Have you asked the Lord to be with you in what you're doing in your everyday? Would it change your daily outlook if you thought you had the Lord with you in everything you were doing? Would it change what you did with your friends and your every, everything in your life? If, Like Miriam's talk a few weeks ago, if you imagined having a lion next to you, a lion that's on your side. Okay, so Saul then says, okay, right, I'll stick you in my armor because fair play, you go and have a go, but, you know, you don't want to get killed. So he puts him in the armor. He says, there's no way I can fight in this. Throws it off. Goes out alone. David goes out alone. Uh, Goliath thinks that he's carrying a stick because uh, 
This is interesting. Probably, if he had this condition, this giant condition, probably uh, he would have had very bad eyesight. All of the people who we just saw, the enormous people, had very bad eyesight. It's part of the condition. Um, there's two reasons why I think he might have a bad eyesight, right? Apart from just having this giant condition. He thinks that David is carrying a stick because he says, you come at me carrying sticks, do you think I'm a dog? Um, and probably it looked like that because he was carrying a sling which would have been hanging down by his side. Imagine a, a, a leather yarn kind of thing hanging down by his side. So it would have looked like he was holding a stick, um, but he's not. The other reason why we think Goliath maybe had this condition and maybe was blind uh, is that he was led down by his, sh- uh, his shield bearer. Any enormously powerful soldier with a massive ego and massive confidence saying, come on, I'll take you all on sort of thing, surely he wouldn't have someone else carrying his shield and going before him. But we think that maybe he had that guy doing that for him because he didn't quite know where he was going. Because he was just this enormous warrior who hand-to-hand, if he was in close combat, could see and would have done damage to someone. But from distance, couldn't see. So he needed someone to guide him down the hill. So that happens. He goes down. Goliath goads him. Goads David. And David says an amazing thing. The confidence of this young man because he knows that the Lord has gone with him like Saul said. David said this. Let me read this to you. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. The very, this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the, and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. How cocky is that? <laughs> I think that's amazing. That's one of my favorite speeches of all time. When faced with the biggest challenge, this young lad has the audacity to be able to say something very eloquent. <laughs> Uh, And it must have put the fear of God appropriately into his opposition. Outstanding. And David gives gives glory to God in what he's doing. Remember how last week we looked at Samson and how even though he was asking God uh, for incredible strength when he put the pillars down in the temple uh, and he said, God, renew my strength once more so that I might bring this temple down upon me. But he said, to give vengeance for my two eyes. He was still focused on how annoyed he was and how jealous, uh, uh, sorry, how uh, much vengeance he wanted. He was focused on his own anger. And David is not like that in this story. David is saying, I'm going to give glory to God. I know where my power comes from. I know where my strength comes from. And it's because of that that I don't need to be a very strong person because he, the Lord will give the glory, the, uh, the battle. He will give the victory. So David runs up to the line, slings one stone, ping, uh, it bursts through Goliath's forehead. Um, People have done studies actually recently and measured sling throwing using a similar kind of sling to what David would have had and throwing a stone like the ones that are on the, uh, well it's more like a catwalk isn't it, (laughs) today. Um, 
So throwing something like that, um, it goes, it, they, can, they can fling it at about the same pace as a bullet out of a pistol. So if that's, if you imagine, I don't know, maybe me to the clock, I wish I could have a go at this, <laughs> just pinging it, um, and it just goes straight through Goliath's skull. And it is basically like just a gun, bang, in the head like you see in the films, which is why Goliath dies straight away. Um, David runs up to him straight away, I think before anyone really knows what's going on, because he's brought into play this new way of doing battle, a third way. Remember that we had the, the face-off army, army to army, and then we had the individuals man to man, and then David brings in a third method, which is the aerial route, and no one thought of that. It wasn't in anyone's minds. David just comes in, slings a stone, kills the giant, runs up, picks Goliath's sword up and lops off his head. How do you feel? <laughs> so at that point, uh, the Philistines scarper and uh, the Israelites come through uh, and ruin the Philistines and that's game over. What was there for David to fear? What did he have to lose? I guess he walked up and found a situation where he thought, what have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? Y your God is being defied every day. How much do you care about that? How much are you willing to make a stand on the principle of it? Why is no one willing to have a go? David's like, remember how God, from, he has been our God since Abraham and through all the stories that we recount every time we're around a bonfire. Everybody knows this. He's the deliverer God. He always delivers us out of awkward situations. He delivers us out of Egypt. He led us through the promised land. We know this. Remember Gideon? We only had 300 people and we took a whole army on and we beat them. David's thinking, you've just been telling me these stories. You're my senior men. Don't you believe it? Have I got it wrong? Maybe, maybe they were just folk tales. Maybe those things never happened. Or maybe they did. And if they did, we, what have we got to lose? We've got to deliver a God. So if we take up a pebble and sling it at the giant, because I'm thinking I'm going to have a go, God will come through. The stone will hit the skull, the giant will hit the floor, and we'll march on. So I, isn't it amazing that he's, he's just got something in the audacity of youth, isn't there? Where someone just says, I dare to believe what it says in the scriptures. That's what David does, although he probably would have only heard the stories told to him. But he says, I dare to believe what you've told me to be true about this God. And if that's true, that's ruinous for every other person who doesn't believe him. And it's incredible for us. What does that mean for you today? What does it mean for if you were to say in your life, I'm going to have the boldness to say, I think it's probably true. I'm not sure, but these stories I've heard, I think there's probably truth in them. Okay, I'm not getting into word for word everything in the Bible. Let's not have that debate. What I'm saying is, if you're willing to say the general truth of what the Lord is about, if, if what Jesus said he came to earth to achieve was true, where does that leave us? And if we live our life with the same uh, belief, where does that leave us in our situations we find ourselves in? The stuff we look at that we think that's reprehensible, that's morally outrageous, what does it leave us doing in response to that stuff? Because there's nothing to fear apart from fear itself, in my opinion. Fear paralyzes. Most common thing in the Bible, God says, as we all know, many of us all know, is don't be afraid. 
It's the most common thing God says. Why is that? Because the only thing to fear is fear itself. In Matthew 16, we see this. Uh, Jesus talking to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That authority that Jesus gives us, it's the audacity that he sees in Peter as the young man where there isn't really fear, the guy who steps out the boat, okay, messes up. God doesn't seem to be bothered about people who mess up like we saw in Samson. But he wants, he's interested in a person who's willing to step out of the boat and have a go, like David, someone who's willing to have a go. I think uh, a bit how Jesus gives us authority uh, is, is a bit like this. If you imagine a policeman found a man doing a crime and, and, uh, and thought, wait a minute, that's totally illegal and I'm a policeman, I should probably do something about this. Uh, and grabbed him and took him back down to a police station and called up for the chief of police to come down from his office. And so down he came, and then this policeman says, I found this man doing a crime, you need to arrest him. And the chief of police would say, you arrest him, you're a policeman. <laughs> I gave you authority to arrest this man. That's a bit how it is with God and Jesus. We ask them the whole time to do something that he is, that Jesus asked us to do. Je Jesus says, I give you authority to his disciples. I give you authority to cast out demons, cl cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, heal the sick, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I came and gave you authority to do that. But we find those situations and go, and go, God, please will you come and do something about this? And perhaps in the Israelite army, we found people with the same mindset as so often we have, which is, God, I hope you come and deliver us. I hope you come and do something in this awful situation. And in David, you have someone who says, well, remember who our God is. I'm going to do something about this. So he steps up. And I think that's a bit how Jesus uh, is intending us to live when he says to his disciples, I give you authority. He says in Luke 10, 19, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. It's almost like Jesus' words could be heard by David on, the, on that day. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Amazing. I'm going to ask my friend David uh, to come up. Let's give him a round of applause. This is David. Step up onto the rubble, will you? Thank you. Made a right mess here, haven't we? This is David. Um, Dave, you have uh, been around in uh, in this neck of the woods for a while. Uh, you live in Leeds at the moment, yeah? Yes. But uh, you used to live in York. Tell us about when you lived in York. What brought you to York? Um, yes, first up, I came to York. I was at um, York St. John University and also played for the mighty St. Mike's football team for a good three years. And um, also, it was a very special time for me because I met my wonderful wife as well when I was at York. So, <laughs> head down. <laughs> Just embarrass right. her. <laughs> Let's be over there. Um, yeah, St. Mike's FC, those were good days, weren't they? Very good. Um, and um, then, skip forward a few years, you uh, went to India. 
retract in a few years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that was before York. And you saw something in India which affected you deeply, right? Yeah, definitely. Tell us about that. Um, well, basically, yeah, when I was 18, so um, basically a time when I was quite naive, had a lot more hair than I've got now, I was in um, Calcutta in India, and um, I was working over there with a BMS action team, kind of working with some of the street children and things in Calcutta, and absolutely loved it, amazing experience, but something that really struck me when I was there is there was two guys on our team, me and a guy called Gaz, we were walking down one of the main streets in Calcutta, and this guy just sort of came up to us out of the crowd, had these photos of basically young girls, and saying, are you looking for girls? Would you like these girls for sex? And for me, 18 years old, it just blew my mind that that kind of thing was happening. And yeah, it just broke my heart, really. And I saw that this was going on and I thought, I, I can't be in this world and know this is happening and not do something about it. I've got to do something to challenge this and to try and raise awareness. And so then, if we do then skip forward a few years, uh, you went again for a year, and when did the book come in? Yes, yeah, so um, yeah, me and my wife, we've just been across for a year and got back again. And basically, another one of the things that really struck me when we were there was this thing called the caste system. And I don't know, some of you guys might know a bit, some might sort of know more than others. But in very broad strokes, it's basically uh, Indian society was divided into four main castes, depending on what job you could do, who you could marry, and different things like that. And it's changed quite a bit over the years, but it's still, particularly in the villages, it was still quite strong, those kind of ties. Below those four main castes, there was then a group called like the Dalits, who were kind of known as the outcasts, basically, which is the word where that comes from in English. And me and B have just been across there working with children from that particular caste, because they'd be apparently 27 times more likely to be at risk of trafficking than children would be like in, in the rest of the world. And um, yeah, another one of the kind of stats that really got to me was that apparently in India, there's between 1.2 and 6 million children who are actually within the brothels, and that's like quite a conservative kind of estimate. They're saying it could be far more, which is kind of unknown of. So um, yeah, sort of knowing those kind of facts and those statistics. Again, it's been something since even the whole time I was at York sort of studying, all my time after that I trained and became a teacher, and the whole time, all always at the back of my mind was that I really need to do something about this, and kind of really felt God sort of speaking into my heart saying, yeah, you're gonna do something, but not just yet, and sort of preparing me. And over that time, yeah, um, we then sort of went back for the year and been, wor been working with children in an orphanage over there. Some of them would have been like quite a risk of trafficking. There was one of the, the children, there's a boy called Kieran who was 12 years old and he's he basically been coming to the school and then we didn't see him for about two, three months and we're kind of asking what's, what's happened to him, where is he? And it turned out that his father was an alcoholic and he basically sold him off like to work in one of the fields so that he could have money to kind of feed his habit. And eventually through the organisation they got him back into the school but then him and his sister disappeared sort of two months later and we never saw them again. So kind of with the children we were working with, we had no idea, like with the backgrounds that they came from, if they were at risk of being trafficked and things that way. So really, yeah, felt that I had to do something to try and stand up against this. So what did you do, Dave? Um, the thing I did is I wrote my novel with the lovely little picture over at the back there called uh, Scar Tissue. And I wanted to, to do something to raise awareness on these issues. But um, I know personally, kind of, I've like done a lot of research, but for a lot of people to sort of sit and, I guess, read through facts and figures, it's quite a, a difficult thing to do. So I wanted to write a story that was a crime thriller, something that people would hopefully pick up and be like, this is a real, really interesting story. I want to get through it, find out what's happening at the end. But also at the same time, it kind of educates you and lets you know what's going on in the world. And then at the back of the book, there's sort of five different charities which are mentioned. And hopefully people will read it. And I've had quite a few people say to me, they've finished it and then look to those charities to kind of think, right, this is going on in the world. What can I actually do about it? And then they've got an outlet, been able to look at those charities and say, right, how can I get involved? What can I do to kind of stand up against this? And um, 
So you're writing your own book uh, and self-publishing uh, to start with. You've got a, yeah, you have a, have yeah, a publisher, yeah, okay. A publisher. And uh, for a first book, have you got an idea of how many uh, copies sold is, is a good target? Yeah, I was told, again, it was quite, quite an answer to prayer, really. Um, just, just the week before we went to India for the second time, I'd kind of written the first novel, suddenly did editing. But like sending off to a publisher, and if anyone sort of knows it, really hard sort of market to get into. Week before we left, sort of got a phone call from the publisher saying, "Yep, we'd be delighted to sort of publish your novel." So it's like, "Yes, happy days get in." Right. And um, he kind of said that within, um, yeah, basically the, the sort of book market, if you sell over 500 copies, you're basically in the top two percent because it's such a sort of flooded market and stuff. Wow. So it's a tough one to get into. And I've sort of recently, as of a couple of weeks ago, I've sort of sold about 14,000 copies. <laughs> so the words, it's getting how like good that, is that? Is That's good. I reckon I'd like to give that a round of applause. <laughs> That's remarkable. 14,000. Brilliant. Still, still a little bit stunned. <laughs> a little bit stunned. Yes. So you can get it on Kindle, can't you? Yes, available on Kindle. And you can buy it at the back. It's eight pound ninety nine, but I reckon people are G two. It's it's nine quid, isn't it? Let's be fair. You're not going to take a penny off him, are we? But anyway, he's got penny. He's brought pennies just <laughs> in case. If anyone <laughs> would like that penny back, you can have it. <laughs> Some people might even pay ten quid, Una. Um, so finally, um, where would you hope this goes? Have you got another book in in the pipeline? And uh, what do you hope is achieved by this? Um, hopefully, yeah, obviously one of the things would be like raising awareness, so letting people like, know what's going on sort of in the world out there. So I've had, again, like a lot of feedback from people who said, I've read it, I've passed it on to my neighbour, to one of my good friends to sort of read so that they can find out like, what's happening. Got a few friends sort of in the ministry who've like, kind of done sermons and been able to speak on what's happening. And um, yeah, sort of a lot of people who've actually got involved with the charities, whether that's giving money, whether it's like maybe volunteering time, whether it's setting up a group to let people know what's going on. And then I've just started on a second book as well at the moment, which is again set in, uh, set in India on a particular cast up with the temple prostitutes. And again, trying to raise awareness because even when we were sort of over there, we didn't have any idea what was going on until we visited one of the charities that was there and basically found out about what, what they were doing to kind of stop that from happening. Wow. So yeah, it's all right if I just say a little bit yeah. on the charities. Yeah, go for it, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, the two we went with, if, if uh, people were interested, one was called Dalit Freedom Network. And that was working with, as I said, sort of who were called the outcasts originally. And um, the particular practice of girls, as soon as they hit puberty, they'd basically be like kind of married to the temple. And that would mean they could be used by any men in the village, almost as like a prostitute, but for free. And it's a practice which is now illegal, but it still sort of happens. And they go to the ceremonies and basically try and like stop the girls from being dedicated, get them into schools and actually have a chance of going on. But um, yeah. They basically have schools that they could come to before the ceremonies so that they could like basically be taken out of that system. So that was one of the charities called Dalit Freedom Network who were doing amazing work. And the one that we worked for were called Life Association. And they have got about six different sort of projects in India. Um, they sell sort of amazing candles that are made in the slum, in Slumdog Millionaire, which you can make uh, brilliant Christmas presents. Mother's Day coming up, so that's well worth looking at. And um, yeah, they also like run the orphanage that we were in, um, a few different schools and home for disabled children. So, yeah, hopefully, I'd love it if people were able to get behind those charities and really support them in the work they're doing. And one thing I just wanted to clarify about the book, um, is it, would you say it's a Christian book? Or is it just a book for anyone, or what would you... Yeah, book book for anyone to pick up, yeah. Kind of w hoping by writing, like, a mainstream kind of crime thriller that it's something that people would feel, yeah, whether they're a Christian or not, they'd like to read it, they'd like to pass it on to their friends and be able to, yeah, read a good story okay. at the same time. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Well, should we give Dave another round of applause? <laughs> And uh, 
So thanks, Dave, for sharing that, because I think it's so helpful to see an example of somebody who we know uh, who has taken a stone like David did and had a sling at a Goliath, because he's going to have a go, because he's not just going to sit by and see something like human trafficking, child slavery um, happen and just go, well, that is a nightmare, isn't it? It's a bit of a standoff between us and them. Um, he's willing to have a go. Um, okay, so uh, if we can have the reflection questions, great. Then um, we're going to take uh, two minutes now. I'd like uh, you, let's do this in silence. Um, just to take two minutes to reflect where this leaves us. So who, uh, what are you afraid of? Who or what is your Goliath? Uh, why do you want to defeat it? What has God given you to use against it? Could God use you to defeat it? Where does your power come from? So you probably don't want to think about all those questions. Maybe pick one of them that uh, works for you, or resonates as you've been listening so far. Pick a question and, and just uh, ask God to speak into that a little bit more to meditate on it, reflect on it. You've heard a lot of words. Just give a little bit of space and room for God to move and then we'll respond in different ways.